This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 15. There are few people who have taught Christians to live by faith and not by sight better than Fanny Crosby. Aunt Fanny, as she was often called, was born in 1820 in the state of New York into a Christian home. And at just age six weeks, she developed a serious inflammation of the eyes. Their family doctor was out of town, and so a traveling, untrained physician gave her these hot mustard compresses to put on her eyes to provide relief. Well, the prescription had the opposite effect of healing and left Fanny permanently blind. Her father then died a few months later, leaving her to be raised by her young mother and grandmother. It was her grandmother who taught her to see that blindness was not a thief, but a gift. At age eight, Fanny wrote one of her first poems. Let me read it to you. Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot and I won't. Are you stunned by this eight-year-old girl who would write that kind of words? I am. The trust in God, the humble dependence that Fanny demonstrated so early in life. For a girl who could not see with her physical eyes, she saw so much. She lived by faith in things unseen. Last week we joined in this incredible song of Moses that sang of God's great salvation to his people. After the Israelites experienced one of the most miraculous events of their lives at the Red Sea, they stopped and sang, Who is like you, O Lord? However, it only took three days for their joyful singing to fade and the noise of grumbling to fill the air. It's often said that it took the Lord one night to get his people out of Egypt and 40 years to get Egypt out of them. We'll see many times that to be true in the coming weeks. And what we'll find is the biggest problem with the Israelites had nothing to do with their zip code or their circumstances. Their biggest problem was their hearts. It's stunning to see how much doubt and hostility they demonstrate toward God so early in their life. For people who could not, or people who could see with their physical eyes, they were blind to so much. Still, each step along the way, the Lord would teach them what it looks like, what it means to be a people who live by faith and not by sight. Today, we turn the page to the second major section in the book of Exodus as we travel into the wilderness. It was here that the Lord God taught his people vital lessons in the school of faith. Our passage traces the first steps of the Israelites from the Red Sea into the unknown, and they contain a preview of what is to come on this journey forward. The children of God will often be filled with grumbling, 
yet he will always be filled with grace toward his people. All of this is seen in this wonderful little scene, Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. That's our passage for today. And as the long trip begins, the first lesson that they learn is that even in bitter circumstances, they can find the bitter sweet. And these lessons were not meant only for them. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, they are meant for us. So let me begin with this shaping question. What lessons have you learned in the wilderness? Three important lessons fill this scene. Here they are. First, grumbling does no good. Second, the Lord's testing is meant for our good. And then finally, the Lord is always gracious and good. So let me invite you to rise to your feet once more as we read together from God's holy and inerrant word. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first lesson we learn as we go into the wilderness is that grumbling does no good. You can nudge your spouse if you want right now. It's interesting how Moses says the Israelites packed up and headed into the wilderness. Moses made them. Perhaps the people would have been content to just remain there on the shore of the Red Sea. But the Lord had greater plans in store for his people. The first part of this journey was into the wilderness of shore, which did not provide any drinkable water for shore. (laughs) Look, guys, the situation's no laughing matter. The situation therein is no small matter at all. Three days is near the limit of how long people can live without water before they die of dehydration. Of course, the Lord who made them in his very image, who knows them, is well aware of their needs. Charles Spurgeon pointed out, at the Red Sea, they feared too much water. In the desert, they feared too little of it. Imagine the agony that they would have felt as exhausted older saints did their best to keep up. First-time parents worried about their small 
children dying of thirst. This is real. And then after three days of thirsty traveling through the desert, their parched spirits were immediately lifted when they saw on the horizon an oasis. Up ahead was water. Their hearts would have leapt for joy. And surely they've got a little pep in the step going all the way to the water, and they fell down on the ground exhausted and cupped their hand, and the moment they pull their hand to their mouth, they're filled with bitter disappointment. The water was salty. It was brackish, likely. It was sour, smelling of strong minerals. What kind of water was it? It was bitter and undrinkable water. So God's people are in a desert with no water, hemmed in again with trouble. And I want us to notice there are two responses to this unexpected circumstance that we find at this place called Mara. The first is grumbling. The Israelites realized that these promising pools of water were just a mirage, and their hope withers in the heat as they grumble against Moses. This is the first time the word grumble appears in the Old Testament. In every reference, it reflects a rebellious attitude of the Israelites. What are we supposed to drink, Moses? This water's bitter. That's where this word comes from, mara. That word means bitter. You know, for many of us, it would take far less than three days. It could be a number of hours if we were so thirsty before we would become entirely irritated and begin to grumble. It's sometimes said that most Western societies are three days away from empty shelves and civil disorder. We appear to live peacefully together, but if something went wrong with food supplies, it would only take three days before rioting and looting broke out. Perhaps you got a small glimpse of that this week as this forecast of just one day of ice storms was going to come through. And some people made a mad dash for the grocery store and hoarded like we were going to be in our houses for weeks. I'm not grumbling right now. I'm just reporting what I saw. (laughs) This is not hard for us to understand. Parents, think about your care for your children. Husbands, for your wife. You want to make sure they have what they need. And they were bitter. The water was not the only thing that was bitter. The hearts of the people had turned bitter with unbelief. Their grumbling is not the kind of prayer that we see in the Psalms. The Bible teaches us to pray and to call upon the Lord and to groan out when we see things that are broken. But they're not doing that. This is a rebellious desert community complaining with lack of faith. Rather than cry out to God, they murmur to Moses. David, in Psalm 106, sings of this very moment. Verse 7 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. It would have been right for them to cry out to the Lord, but instead they murmur against Moses. The offense of the Israelites was that they were faithless and their hope was placed somewhere other than the Lord. 
So that's the first response we see, grumbling. The second is crying out. Biblical, wholehearted, faith-filled, crying out to the Lord. Look how different the response is of Moses. When the Israelites complain about their situation, Moses goes to God. Verse 25 implies that God heard Moses' prayer, and then he showed him a log or a tree. In Hebrew, it's the same word for both log or tree. And then this word showed is like a double entendre. God shows him this tree and then shows him what to do with this tree. God instructs Moses exactly what to do here in this situation. So guys, Moses takes this tree, probably uproots it, and throws it in the water, and the bitter water turns sweet. That's a miracle. It's not a small thing. Can this be explained by science? Well, sure it can. But who's the one that made this tree? Who's the one that made this water? Who's the one that performed mightily on behalf of his people? Who is like the Lord our God? What a miracle God performs for these grumbling children so that they might find the bitter sweet. Do you remember back in Egypt, God turned the sweet water of the Nile into blood for his enemies? Here at Mara, he turns the bitter water into sweet replenishment for his children. God met their need. So, let's just step back for a minute. How can the Israelites go so quickly? Three days' time from singing the praise of God to grumbling about Him. Isn't it pretty audacious? Who could move so quick from worry to worship? Who could move so quick from faith to fear? Before we kick the Israelites while they're down, let's just hold up God's word like a mirror to our own lives. There have been more than one Sunday when I've been with you singing of the salvation of our God, and by the end of lunch, I'm grumbling. Maybe you too. The lesson from the wilderness is that grumbling does no good. We'll see this for the next few weeks in a row. There's a lot of grumbling coming up. And it's meant for us. Rather than grumble, the Bible teaches us how to cry out. Are you in a desert today? Is there brokenness in your life, in your family, in this world that you need language to cry out to God? The Bible instructs us not to just grumble about it, but to biblically lament these things, to cry out to the Lord. When we did an exposition of Psalm 6, early on in the life of our church, before we'd endured some things together, I said, I want to prepare us to give us language to know how to lament together. Let me just rehearse these four steps really quickly. If this is you today, this is what the Lord's calling you to do. And for those of you between wilderness experiences, this is what the Lord wants to teach you even now, so you're prepared for it when it comes. One, Cry out to the Lord. Their murmuring was horizontal. The Bible teaches us to go straight to God. Cry out to the Lord in faith. Second, spread your burdens before him. 
How does the old gospel go? Tell him all about your troubles. Spread your burdens before him. Three, ask him to change things. Plead with him to change things for his glory, for your good, for the advancement of the gospel in the world. Ask him to change the broken things that you see. And fourth, this is such a critical step. Keep trusting. Keep trusting. The Israelites told Moses about their troubles. Moses told his trouble to God, whose ear is always turned toward his people. But don't grumble. Grumbling does no good. Grumbling to your mother or to your children or to your coworker, no good. Grumbling on social media, the least of all goods. Grumbling does no good, but cry out to the Lord in desperation. A world of good. The second lesson we learn in the wilderness is that the Lord's testing is meant for our good. This passage is a snapshot of a much larger picture to come. The Lord uses this moment as a teaching opportunity. So parents, this is like what you would do in the course of your day where something happens. You want to just pause and be intentional with this moment and just teach your kids something. This is what the Lord is doing with his kids in the wilderness. On the banks of Mara, God taught and tested his people in order that they might know him and grow in their faith. So if this is day one of university in the wilderness, the Israelites are surprised to find out there is a test. This test is to get a baseline of where they are in their knowledge and trusting in God. And if the desert was a university where God taught and trained his disciples, this is where they would get their degree before they entered the promised land. There wasn't a way around this. They were going to go through it. And every step would be a test. And every step would be a step of grace. Verse 25 says, At Mara, the Lord tested them. Now we've got to understand when God tests his people, he's not trying to get them. He's trying to teach them. We've got to have our doctrine of God right in this. As his children, if you're in Christ, God's not trying to get you with tests. He's trying to teach you, to shape you. He doesn't want his children to fail. He wants them to learn. Now, these tests are for their good, so they will know who the Lord is and exactly what he requires of them. Now, there are four commands that God gives to his people all verbs. Here they are. Listen to God's voice. Do what is right. Give ear to his commands and keep his statutes. Now that word statute isn't a word you probably used this week. It's one of the synonyms we use for scripture. It specifically points to the kinds that are written down. This is where we get our word statue from. So the statutes of God, keep them. So I want to just Parse those out. So there's two listening verbs and two doing verbs. The listening verbs give a sense of attentiveness to the words God will speak. He says, pay close attention to my word. God will reveal who he is and exactly what he expects from his people. So the pairing of listen and do sounds a lot like the New Testament apostle James. 
who said, be doers of the word, not hearers only. And that's where these two action verbs are listed. Do what is right and keep God's commands. It's not enough to know the word. God wants his people to be shaped by the word, for our lives to be bent around his word, for us to live in the good of all that he has told us. Okay, so let's just summarize now. What are these four verbs that God's telling his people to do? Listen, pay attention, do what's right, keep his laws. That's what he's saying. Seems easy enough, right? Wrong. Wrong. English students will quickly realize God's words as an if-then clause. So, if the people will do as God has said, then he promises not to put any of the diseases on them that he put on the Egyptians. What the Lord is referencing here are the ten plagues that he put on Egypt. He's saying, if you honor my word and serve me with your lives, then I won't have to go to the same great lengths I went to so that the Egyptians would know who I am. The statement concludes with God revealing himself with this wonderful promise. For I am the Lord, your healer. Those are good words. Wonderful words. This is who our God is. The God who heals. Now what God's not saying here is he's beginning a national health care plan where he would underwrite it and also be the primary physician, ensuring that no one ever got sick or died. Nor is this an endorsement of the health and wealth lies that you hear slung around on television. But this is a promise from the Lord himself to be the great physician of his people. Some he will heal in this world, and some he will heal in the next but he is the great physician. If, then. Well, as we know from the story of Scripture, God's people simply don't have the ability to attend his word perfectly, to pay attention to it, to listen to it. And so God would send his one and only son who would come and speak only what the Father has spoken. John 8, 49. The Israelites, nor you and I, could ever perfectly obey the law. And so Jesus did what only the Father did. John five nineteen, And ultimately, it was Christ who would die in our place for the many ways that we could not live in light of God's law. And into our sin-sick condition, Christ the healer has touched our greatest infirmity and brought healing to our souls. As Dane Ortland taught us, Christ didn't reel back from our sin. He touched it. He moved into it, bringing healing to us. One thing is critical for us to understand as we move through this section of Exodus The salvation of God's people was not dependent on them passing or failing these tests, 
but was dependent on the work that God had already done. So the good news of Exodus, the gospel of Exodus, is not God speaking to his people in Egypt, if you obey my commands and if you listen to my word, then I'll save you. No, he reached into their condition and saved them. They are now his people, his redeemed. And now he says, as my people, this is what you'll do. This is what living a life of redemption looks like. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by Christ's completed work. And we are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Now, this is certainly not the last time that we will need to point this out as we wander through the wilderness with our forebears. But the tests of God, we've got to make sure we understand this. They do not merit salvation. God will test his people in order to teach them what it means to be his people. This is what God means to do in the tests that come our way. So perhaps like the Israelites, you thought that after Christ so gloriously saved you, the rest of this life would be a highway to heaven. You would cruise easily from Egypt to Canaan from sin's slavery straight to the promised land. But in between our salvation and that place to come, God means to teach and sanctify his people. So let me just pull this into our world. You and I who experience testing, this is not our, the tests that God sends our way are not for us to earn our salvation. They're for us to learn who he is. You see, you and I have already been justified by Christ. It's just as if, if you're a Christian, this is true of you, whether you feel it or not. When God sees you, it's just as if you'd never sinned and just as if you'd always obeyed. If you've been born again, that is true of you. Let me tell you something else that's true. One day your thirsty, tired body will be made new. The biblical word for that is glorification. So we live right now in this wilderness between justification and glorification. In the work of our salvation known as sanctification. That's what's happening here. God is making his people holy. They've been declared righteous. They are becoming more righteous. And they will be righteous on that day. And that is true of us. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another by the Holy Spirit of God. He is at work in us. The tests that God sends our way are not meant to injure our faith. They are meant to teach us who he is and what he commands as his people. The Lord's testing is for our good. And then the final lesson we learn in the wilderness and even throughout all of Scripture is that the Lord is gracious and good. Our God is not only Lord over the desert, but he is Lord in the desert. In the book of Exodus, God has revealed himself, made himself known as the great I Am, back in Exodus 3, the redeemer of his people, back through the end of the ten plagues, the savior of his people, Exodus 14 and 15, And with each act that we have witnessed 
and each great act to come, we will see again and again that the Lord is gracious and good. Just in my time of personal worship this week, I came across Psalm 25.8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. So who is he? Good and upright. What does he do? Instructs sinners in the way. That's not other people, that's you and me. Immediately following the story of God's grace at Marah, they move to another place called Elam. Elam is both an expression of God's grace and goodness, as well as, don't miss this, a foretaste of things to come. Yet notice how quickly it comes and goes. The miracle at Marah is given five verses. Elam is given one. So what is the point of this little verse that seems to be just filled with details about this little place? Well, they are very important. Let me read it, verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. What does this teach us? Well, that God knows how to provide for his people. This little garden of Eden in the middle of the desert is rich with imagery pointing to God's faithful provision for his people. Moses tells us there were 12 pools, 70 palm trees. This is like South Florida in the middle of the desert. All these pools, all these palm trees. What are they meant for? Well, to remind us of God's goodness. The 70 trees provided shade, reminding us of the 70 elders of Israel. These 12 pools call our attention to the 12 tribes of Israel. And what does all of this teach us? These details remind us that God knows his people. He hears his people. He sees his people and he remembers his promises. He knows what they need even before they need it. So for them to just roll up in this place full of pools and palm trees was not an immediate miracle, right? When were those trees planted? Years before. Because in the sovereign wisdom of God, he knew, you know, one day my kids are going to come through here and they're going to need provision and they're going to need a reminder that I am who I say I am. And so in my grace, I'm going to show them here at this place. So God the gardener planted these trees. God the one who formed the water out of nothing is the one who placed it here as a demonstration of his graciousness and goodness. These palm trees were not just barren. They also had dates that would feed his people. So there they had water, they had food, and they would soon move on. But this picture of plenty and provision, water and shade in Elam is a foretaste of what is to come. Because what is to come? A land flowing with milk and honey. Where the Lord will rule and reign over his people in his place. And here, after wandering in the wilderness of Shur for a few days, the Lord gives them a foretaste of glory. Let's not miss this important reality. Um, the Lord is always gracious and good. When his children were panting for breath and 
longing for water, he was good. When they come to Mara and they taste the bitterness and brackishness of the water, which would make them just more and more thirsty, he was good. When he miraculously provided for them there through this tree, turning the bitter water sweet, he was good. As he brings them to this place, the final place in chapter 15 of Elam, he's good. And he's always good. In whatever situation, he's good. Brothers and sisters, our God is gracious and good every step of the way. And he has given us the greatest grace and the sweetest good in Christ. When bitter sin is all we could taste, leaving us parched and panting for deliverance, the Lord took a tree and through it brought healing to our souls. It was by his wounds that we have been healed, Isaiah 53, 6 says. And that is pointing to the blood shed of Christ upon the cross, the blood that, by which we were redeemed, by the completed work of Christ that we were saved And in his grace, he gave us his word so that we might know him and love him and come to trust him with every step of this pilgrim path that winds through the desert. And so in these few verses on the road, we come to learn these three lessons. Grumbling does no good. The testing of the Lord is meant for our good. And the Lord is always gracious and good. I came upon these words from an obscure John Newton hymn. I want to read you the whole thing, but for the sake of time, I'll just read you the final verse. As he connects this episode of Mara with the cross of Christ, this is what he writes. When we by faith behold the cross, though many griefs they meet, we draw again from every loss and find the bitter sweet. And in Christ, surely we have. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would, in your great grace, give us hearts that would sing even in moments of anxiety, when the future is unknown, that we would be a people who walk by faith and not by sight. You would forgive us for the grumbling, unbelieving nature that we often demonstrate as your people. We would be reminded again of your forgiveness toward us. I pray for those going through a time of testing that we would know that even the testing for those of us who are in Christ, who love you and are called according to your purposes, that you're working these things out even for our good and for your glory. And remind us that you're always gracious and good, come what may. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.